This is Exodus 16, 1 through 7, and 13 through 31. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, There was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord had commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them had gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Roy. Roy, what's coriander seed? It's good. It's good. So uh, this past week on Thursday morning, um, I uh, broke my big toe on my right foot. Uh, at least I think I did. I don't know. It's purple and black. That's all that I know. Feels broken, okay? 
um, and what I feel is real. I'm kidding. Uh, I, so I'm going to sit while I preach, and if the Spirit so moves, I may stand, um, but be patient with me because I am I'm in pain. Uh, but we are, uh, we are looking and walking through the book of Exodus this semester. We are studying the Exodus of the people of Egypt. Oh, sorry, I didn't ask you. Matt, are we good? You finding a seat? We can find a seat. Who's got a seat? We got one right here, Matt. Over here, over here. Can I get to you? Can I get to you? Three, three, three. We good? Okay. Um, studying the book of Exodus uh, this semester, and we're looking at the deliverance of the people of God from slavery and the deliverance of the people of God into freedom. It's, 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 it's one deliverance, but it's two-parted. They're, he's getting them out from Egypt, and then he's taking them into freedom to serve and worship the Lord. And so there's, there's been 400 years of slavery. He's come down into the land of Egypt with the ten plagues and then the Red Sea parting to deliver his people from the mighty hand of Pharaoh and lead them to the promised land, lead them into freedom. And last week we saw uh, Matt Avery preach for us and we saw that the very first thing that people do after the Red Sea moment is they burst into musical style, somehow they all know the words, worship song. Everybody knows the song and they join in, in singing and dancing and celebrating. Look at what the Lord just did for us. Look at who the Lord is. And we're so sure based on what we just watched in Egypt with the ten plagues and with the parting of the Red Sea, we're so sure that our God is with us and for us and that no one can stand against him. We're, he's going to deliver us from our future enemies too. He's going to provide for us. He's going to be faithful as we walk forward. So they're singing this song of past, present, and future faithfulness of the Lord. And then less than 30 days go by and they're miserable. They grumble and they complain. They're unsure of who's going to take care of them. And they begin to accuse the Lord and to accuse Moses of why did you do this? I mean, they literally say, did you just do all that stuff in Egypt and with the Red Sea? Was that all just to show so that you could bring us out here to kill us? by hunger. Like, I bet that's what you were up to, God. I bet oh, we know exactly what kind of God you are. You're the kind of God who wants to spend a whole bunch of energy and glory and love so that you can just kill us. I bet we really know what you're all about. You wanted to starve us to death. They say that. And the Lord very kindly responds to their grumbling. He's so long-suffering with them. He's so patient with them. He gives them manna. He gives them quail, food and meat, bread and meat every day to eat. And then he gives them instructions on how to in, in, um, engage with it, on what to do with the daily provision of food. So the daily provision of food and the instructions for how to interact with it, that's what we're going to look at today. Because what I want us uh, to see this morning, what I want to invite us into seeing this morning is that the Lord, like I said, is not just leading them out of slavery, but he's leading them into freedom. And so this story and the subsequent stories that will come in the book of Exodus is the Lord taking the Israelites to freedom school. I delivered you out of the hand of your enemy, but you are a free people, but you don't know how to be free. I've got to teach you how to be free. I've got to lead you into freedom. I've got to train you on how to be a free people. It's been said before that God had to first get the people out of Egypt, and now he has to get the Egypt out of the people. <laughs> They've been so trained like slaves. They've lived like slaves. They've lived like someone who's going to oppress them, and they're out of Egypt now with no oppressor, and they're out of Egypt now with no one to enslave them, and yet they still act like slaves. And just as a little um, comparison, compare and contrast, the amount of time it took for the Lord to get them out of Egypt, to deliver them from their taskmaster 
was about four months. That's how long the ten plagues took, about four to five months. The amount of time it's going to take the Lord to get the Egypt out of them is 40 years. <laughs> so it, that, that should speak to us. If, if you've been delivered, if you've been set free by the Lord, he maybe has gotten you out of Egypt. He's maybe delivered you from your enemy. It's a long time before people who have been delivered learn how to walk in their newfound freedom. 40 years worth. So this, this teaching, I mean, the Bible says that the book of Exodus especially was written for us, that the church would learn how to walk in the same realities that they were learning how to walk in. This story is for us. So we're going to be studying how they're walking into freedom. We're going to be studying the school of freedom that the Lord is taking them through in this story. But don't miss it. That This is, this is for us. This is how we are to learn to walk in the freedom that we have after being redeemed by the Lord. And so, the, the, the macro picture, the overarching theme of the story, and before I hurt my toe, I was going to use a whiteboard to walk back and forth, so I'm sorry, okay, that I can't do that. But here, here's, the, here's the big theme for the morning, the, 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 the first step in the journey of freedom for God's people is that you have a provider. You having a provider is the first step in freedom. You learning that you have a provider is you learning how to be free. He's saying to the Israelites, you've never had a provider. You've been a slave. You've been abused. You've been barely kept alive so that you could serve the needs of a harsh taskmaster. You haven't been provided for. I am your provider. You have a provider. I will be faithful to you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And the more you learn to walk in that, the more you learn to understand that I will be your provider, the more you will be free. This story is the Lord teaching them how to walk in the freedom of having Him be their provider for all their needs. So we're going to look at two things that the Lord provides for them. As their provider, two things. You can just imagine the whiteboard diagram, I know. You can just imagine how clear it would be. But the Lord being their provider, two things He's going to provide for them to teach them how to walk in freedom. The first is daily food, daily provision, and then the second thing that the Lord provides for them is rest. We'll look at that too. Daily food and rest. Both of them are part of his umbrella of provision and providing for them. And both of them are teaching them how to be free. God is their provider. He is the provider of their daily bread and he is the provider of their Sabbath rest. And when those two things collide for us, that we trust the Lord to be our daily provider and we trust the Lord to lead us into rest, I will be free. Here's the thesis for the morning. When God provides for me, I rest. When I have to provide for me, I never rest. So here we go, two provisions. The provision of daily food and the provision of rest. Here we go, daily, daily food. Um, so the narrative starts with this little uh, uh, comment about the Israelites and how they're thinking about the Lord and thinking about Moses. Starts in verse two and three, it says this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel, which by the way was about three million people, at least three million people, maybe more. So three million people, what does it say? Grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots, which is disgusting and hilarious, and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. They grumble against the Lord. That word grumble is a word that means to blame. 
That word grumble is the same Hebrew verb that's used in other parts of the Old Testament to describe a dog howling. It's a dog howling word. It's the same word that's used in other places to talk about someone complaining and accusing against someone. They're blaming, they're accusing, they're complaining, they're dog howling at Moses and Aaron and the Lord ultimately. They're not 30 days out from the Red Sea. They're not 30 days out from the greatest act in human history on behalf of the Lord in, in, in all of history. This is the defining act, the Red Sea crossing. God has parted the waters and let them walk through it. We're less than a month out from that. And they begin to accuse the Lord that he did all of that to kill them. They're literally taking their salvation, they're taking their redemption, they're taking their deliverance, and they're, they're rewriting the motives, they're assigning motives to the heart of God, that you just delivered us, sure, great, we praise you for that, we sang about it last week, we sang about it in the Song of Moses, you saved us, ooh, you're great, you're going to be so faithful to us, and now a month later, they're turning that tape back on the Lord and going, we know why you did this, we know exactly why you did this, you did this to kill us. Hey, Israel, um, you just watched the Lord labor for you, work for you, intercede for you, part a Red Sea for you, destroy an enemy for you, and now you're accusing him of wanting to kill you. And we can sit in that and go, Israel, come on. I mean, how can you, how can you not connect the dots? I mean, you were just singing last week about the Lord's future faithfulness, and now you're here, you're in the future, and you're now doubting that any of that is real. How possible is that of happening to us? How possible is it that we could be delivered by God? We could watch God act in mighty ways in our story. We could have a real experience with him. We could sing out to him and mean it and celebrate all that he's done. We could feel his presence. We could feel his closeness. And then wake up the next day and totally doubt if he's even near us. Totally doubt if he even cares about us. And begin to believe about him that he's against us and not for us. Could we do that? Is that possible that we could be just like the Israelites? That maybe in your past the Lord comforted you while you grieved a loss, but now you have kids and you feel so overwhelmed that you have no idea if the Lord's going to be faithful to you as a parent. There's no way he could ever show up for you now. Or maybe you felt close to the Lord in college, but now you're in a new town and you're in a new city and you feel all alone, and you're doubting whether or not the Lord will provide for you what you need in this new city. Or maybe... There were months where things were financially tight and the Lord showed up for you and paid your rent and paid your bills and got you through and you have no idea how it came together, but it did. And now things are financially tight again and you have no idea if he's gonna show up. Or maybe there was a season where you had some disdain for your spouse and you prayed and you went to counseling and you got help and he healed all that and he gave you a new marriage and it was like you remembered why you were married in the first place and everything was great and now the disdain has slowly crept back in and you're angry at the Lord for letting that happen. Like he healed me once, but now why why would he even do that just to taunt me with it again? So I don't know what it is. That, uh, That was four possibilities. We've all got our own version of that, that I've tasted the Lord's goodness in my past, and now there's a new circumstance that's come up, and it's hurling before me a doubt as to whether or not I can bank on his past faithfulness to me and, and take that to, to, to the bank and cash in on the reality that he was faithful in the past, but I bet it's run up. I bet he's, he's given up on me now. So instead of judging and mocking the Israelites here, let's ask this question. Let, let's get behind um, the heart of this a little bit if we can. What do we grumble about? 
What do we complain and accuse the Lord and others about? Well, typically without fail, and I don't mean to oversimplify this because it's complex, but typically without fail, we grumble when we don't think we're going to get what we need. That's what comes out in the Israelites. We're hungry, we're starving, we're dying, we need to eat. We need to be taken care of, and that's not happening. So they begin fantasizing about a past that isn't even real. They actually say, like, we would rather go back to Egypt, where at least we knew we were going to eat meat pots for dinner, which I just imagine a two-liter full of boiled meat disgusting. I don't know what it was, but it sounds gross. And they, they, were, they were at least saying, hey, slavery was better than this, because at least slavery was predictable. At least slavery, we knew what we were going to get. Now you've taken us out here, and we don't know where it's going to come from. We don't know how you're going to provide for us. We would rather be slaves again than be free. And they begin misremembering the past that they just came out of, all because they're not sure they're going to get what they need in the present Because grumbling is based on a fear of not getting what I need. So let's ask this question. Can we we risk asking this question? If grumbling is based on me not thinking I'm going to get what I need in the present, do you know what you need? I know you know what you want from life right now. All of us can articulate that. You want more money, you want more intimacy, you want more community, you want more control, you want less pain, you want more sex, you want more friends. Whatever it is, you can say a whole bunch of things that if you could have a blank canvas for your life or a genie in a bottle and say, I want this for my life, we could all fill that blank in really quickly. I know what I want in life, but do you know what you need in life? Well, Maslow did a hierarchy of needs about 60 or 70 years ago. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's, it's brilliant. It's just unoriginal because the Bible speaks to it way before he did. Uh, it's great. But in his hierarchy of needs, he talks at first about a physiological, like you need food and clothing, which Paul said that too in the New Testament. Get original, Maslow. And then he talked about needing safety, like no one's going to harm me or hurt me. Like we need that comfort of knowing that I'll be protected We need love, we need esteem, and then we need self-actualization. Like, when all the needs can build on each other, that's when we'll, you know, flourish as human beings. And the Lord here is actually providing for all of those needs. Like, he would have checked all of Maslow's checkboxes, all of the hierarchy of needs. He would have said, yeah, I'm doing all that for the people. That's partially what the whole manna narrative is all about. It's what the whole story is telling us. The Lord is going to give you what you need. But what we've missed in the modern psychological assessment of human needs and what this story actually gets beneath Maslow's triangle of uh, his hierarchy of needs, there's a deeper need than all of those things. I'm not disagreeing with them. I'm not making fun of them. Y'all know them more than I do, I'm sure. But it's not just that we need those things to be met in order to flourish. There's something underneath all of that that actually is a deeper need, a more real need, a spiritual need that comes before all of those things. And the Lord in this story is saying, I'm going to provide daily what you need. I'm going to rain down manna from heaven, and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to provide for your physical needs. I'm going to keep you safe, and I'm going to protect you. But deeper than all of those needs is this, is this human need. I'm going to show you Israel. I'm going to show you, church, that you have a provider. 
And being certain of your provider's care is the need beneath all other needs. When you know you have a provider, you can begin to let the other needs be met. If you're not sure that your needs are going to be met, if you're not sure that the one who's claimed to provide for your needs will actually do that, you'll never be okay. You'll never be at rest. You'll never be free. And the Lord here is saying that this is part of what's going on in the narrative of Exodus chapter 16. He's saying, I'm going to convince you of my heart towards you, Israel, by giving you food to eat. Yes, you need food to eat, and I'm going to meet that need. I'm going to give you bread every morning. I'm going to give you quail and meat every night. I'm going to give you your physical needs. But beneath that, the physical need that is going on, beneath the physical need, there's a deeper spiritual need that I'm also going to meet for you by giving you the daily bread. Because over time, Israel, with this daily occurrence of watching me provide for you, for the next 40 years, I'm going to rain this down every day. And every day when you come back to this source, your deepest need is going to begin to be met because you're going to know that your provider cares about you. You're going to know that you have a provider that's faithful. And so over time with this narrative, I want you to be able to look back at the story of the wilderness, Israel, and I want you to be able to cash in your confidence that every day the Lord provided for you. And over time, and only over time, will you actually believe that you have a provider that will always provide for your needs. I'm going to prove to you that over the long haul of this daily provision of bread, that I will always be your provider and you knowing that you have a provider is meeting your deepest need. The Lord is trying to assure them, reassure them by the daily provision of food over time that they will know that they have a faithful providing God. He gives them this, this daily bread, literally daily bread, daily manna. Manna is a Hebrew word that just means what is it? They were going around going, what is it? What is it? Manna, manna, manna. I don't even know what it is, but I'm, I'm eating, and it's, it's filling my hunger. And I know this can get scary. I know this can get frightening, because when you look at your life, I know. When you look back over your life, I know there are seasons that you look at in your story up until this point where you would say about the Lord, he didn't give me what I wanted. He didn't give me the storyline I wanted. He didn't give me the healing that I wanted. He didn't give me the promotion that I wanted. He didn't give me the relationships that I wanted. He didn't give me the joy that I wanted. He didn't give me the success that I wanted. He didn't give me what I wanted. And then we use that evidence in our story to hurl back at him in the courtroom of accusations, you have not been faithful to me. You have not given me the life that I wanted. You have not done what I thought you should have done up until this point. And we begin to accuse him like the Israelites that you don't give us what we need. But the issue here, what's going on with the Israelites is, is, is the Lord is beginning the narrative for them that he's done for many of us in this room if you've been a Christ follower for any number of years. What the Lord is inviting us to do is to look back over our stories, to look back at the painful parts of our stories and acknowledge the fact that certainly there have been moments where the Lord did not give you what you wanted, but the Lord has always given you what you've needed. And I can't convince you of that just by telling you the Lord will give you what you need. You have to live that. 
which is part of what's going on in this story, the Lord saying, I'm gonna provide for you daily so that in 40 years when you look back over this time, you won't be able to argue with yourself or with me as to whether or not I'm a faithful provider. I'm gonna invite you into the wilderness and provide for you every day in the wilderness so that when you look back, you'll know my Lord always gave me what I needed. Which is so interesting, because last week during the worship song that they sang, the song of celebration, the first CCM hit in the Bible, right, that would have crushed it in Christian radio, I'm sure, Um, they're singing this song of, you did this, you rescued us, you freed us, you're so good to us, man, we know, we know you're going to be good to us, we know, look at what you've done for us already, you're going to continue to be faithful to us, and now they're 30 days out from that and they don't believe it. They've already forgotten what they promised they knew in their worship song, which sounds a lot like us. And the Lord is saying, I need to provide for you every day. You need to rely on me every day and see that I will always give you what you need amidst all the sorrows, through all the valleys of the shadow of death, amidst all the mountaintops and amidst all the pain and amidst all the loss and amidst all the sadness and amidst all the unmet desires and the hope deferred, amidst all the heart sickness that you have. When you retell your story, the Lord is making sure that they won't be able to say, the Lord never gave me what I needed. He's making sure they cannot say that, which is their deepest need, to be sure of their Lord's provision for them. He's always been your provider. He's always been faithful. He's never abandoned you. And the need he is meeting over time, day by day with that, through the pain, through the sorrow, through the hardship, is the belief that you have always had a faithful provider. So that's the first step in walking into freedom. You have to know that your deepest needs will be met by the daily provision of a faithful God who redeemed you. When you and I begin to walk in that, the Lord is my provider, and he provides for me every day, whether I'm aware of it or not, he always provides for me what I need, day over day, and week over week, and month over month, and decade over decade. He's always provided for me what I need. Not always what I want, but always provided for me what I need. The more I grow in that realization, I'll be free because I'll begin to set down my attempts to have to provide for myself what I think I need. And when we begin to trust the Lord's provision, we will be free. So that's the first step. And some of us can hear that, and some of us have, have walked in that for many years, and we go, yes, the Lord has been my provider. You would acknowledge to that, and or acknowledge that and assent to that. But then the rubber kind of meets the road, and, and we see it on display in the story. It's, it's the second step of freedom. The Lord is my provider, and he provides for me daily what I need, and I learn to trust that, and I, and I become more and more free. And then here's the second step in walking as a free people, which is what you are if you're in Christ. You are free. It's what we just sang. It's what the call to worship was all about. It is for freedom that you have been set free. So why don't we feel like it? Because we don't know how to walk in it. And the first step is the Lord that is your provider. The second step is this. It's the, it's the following of the command to rest. The Israelites are given orders here. I think I'm going to stand up for this one. I think my toe can handle it. The Israelites are given an an order here. They're given a command here by God about how to interact week in and week out with the daily provision of food over time. Starts in verse 25. They're, They're told about this Sabbath day of rest that would become part of the weekly rhythm. Moses said, eat it today, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. 
Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. And then skipping ahead to verse 30, after some trial and error with the Sabbath rule, says this, so the people rested on the seventh day. So six days a week, the people were given manna from the Lord in the wilderness. Six days, day after day, day after day, day after day, day after day, they were provided for. Bread from heaven would come every morning, and they would gather and eat it. But built into that rhythm, built into the daily provision of food for the Israelites, was a day to rest. Built into the rhythm was a day on, on, on Friday night, their Sabbath was Saturday, on Friday night, on Friday day, the Lord is going to, to send twice as much so you can gather up twice as much and trust then that that'll be enough for you and your family tomorrow on a day when it doesn't seem like the Lord is providing anything for you. So I'm going to give you a day where I'm going to double up for you so that on the Sunday or on the Saturday for them, on their Sabbath day, no man is going to fall from the sky. No man is going to be there for you to gather. No bread from heaven is coming. And I want you to learn to rest in my provision even when you can't see my provision. Why is this the command? What point is there in doing a Sabbath break in the week? Why is the Sabbath rhythm good for the people of God? Well, the pastor team here was talking about this this week, that the theology of a Sabbath, um, I mean, we could spend weeks on it. We talked about pausing here and preaching a couple weeks on the Sabbath. So much to be said about the Sabbath, but simply put, we don't Sabbath well, okay? Uh, just because you're at church doesn't mean you know how to Sabbath, okay? I'm working today. I'm not Sabbathing very well either, okay? I'm with you. But there, there is a lot for our culture and our church to learn about what it means to be a Sabbath people. But why do we need the Sabbath? It's because in this story especially, and this is what teaches us about Sabbath rhythms and Sabbath rest, it's that the Lord is providing all that I need, yes. And, and if I can look back over my story and I begin to go, he's always given me what I needed. He's always given me what I needed. That somehow, in, in the most sinister of ways, gets turned where in our, in our selfishness and in our, in our egos, we can begin to believe that sure the Lord provided, but I, I added to my sustaining and I added to my provision. See, on the seventh day for the Israelites in the wilderness, there would be no lifting of the hands by the Israelites. There would be no going outside to gather the manna. There would be no labor. There would be no work. And yet, even without them working, they still had all that they needed. Even when you're resting, I will provide for you. See, we're so prone to use even what the Lord does for us and spin it and make it about us. Like the Israelites would go, yeah, 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 sure, the Lord gave us manna, but we had to go gather it. I had to do something. That's why on, in their trial and error period, when they first hear about the Sabbath day, they don't obey it. On the seventh day, Moses has already told them, hey, secret, there's not going to be any bread on the seventh day. They still go out and start looking for it. Like, I got I to do something. I got to go out here and find it. And the Lord's going, stop doing anything. We do this too. Like, yeah, I mean, I've had some success in my job. And I know the Lord like, provided my job, but I worked really hard. I have some good kids, and, and, and yeah, I mean, the Lord's like, sure, like, he gets the glory and all that kind of stuff, but like, I'm a really good parent. I've worked really hard to raise my kids the right way, and look how it paid off. We do it with our marriages. Got a great marriage. The Lord gave me a great marriage, but I figured marriage out. I know how to do it. 
I mean, I'm not going to take any credit. Like, I'll give him the shout-out at the very beginning of the award speech. Like, you know, all glory to God. Let me then tell you for five minutes why I deserve this. We spin even the Lord's provision and make it about us. I call this Christian nirvana. Buddha's dying words. Strive without ceasing. The Christian nirvana, the Christian Buddhist way to approach life is well, I know that Jesus like died and forgave me and all that kind of stuff, but I've got to work really hard if I want to achieve my rest. And so we work, we labor to try to achieve the rest that's already been won for us. We're trying to achieve Christian nirvana. Like I've got to do something in order to be at rest. And then when I start doing things, I find out that there's a billion other things to be doing. And so I've got to stay busy in order to keep the rest that I feel like I've attained and now I deserve. And so the treadmill never stops. So you have no idea how to Sabbath. You come in here and you come to church for an hour and then you leave here and you're right back to trying to achieve your rest. So on the seventh day, the Lord made it so that no manna would fall from heaven. And the Lord actually has to command them to rest. The way that he phrases it, though, in the story, if you go back, is the Lord actually says, I'm going to give you, like a present, I'm going to give you a Sabbath day. This is for you. You need this Sabbath day. You need a day where you do nothing and you still get what you need. You need a day of rest if you're ever going to be free. You need a day, Israel. You need a day, church. You need a day, Midtown, where you do nothing and are still provided for. You need a day of complete and utter dependence on the Lord where he has given you what you need and you don't lift a finger to get it or deserve it. You need a day of seeing that even when you are doing nothing, the Lord has still and will still provide for you. You need to depend on the Lord every day. And depending on the Lord every day will lead you to freedom. And you need to do that even, you need to learn how to rest in the Lord, especially on days where you do nothing, achieve nothing, accomplish nothing, create nothing, and merit nothing. You need a day where you literally do nothing and then watch over time the Lord still provide for you even though you've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. And when you and I learn to depend on the Lord seven days a week, will be free. Seven-day dependence on the Lord is the pathway to freedom. And I know for the modern mind that doesn't sound like freedom, surely, certainly doesn't feel like freedom. You're telling me I have to depend on someone else in order to be free? That sounds like bondage. No, no, I'm sorry. Independence is where I get my freedom, right? That's what I believe about life. That's what I believe about our country. That's what I believe about how the social system is supposed to work. Independence leads to freedom. The, but the Bible says, actually, where you're the most free is when you need me for everything. You'll actually be free. You won't be in bondage. Because over time, guess what you'll learn when you depend on me for everything, even on days where you don't do anything? You'll learn that I'm a faithful provider, and I'll give you what you need, and I'll give you the rest, even when you've done nothing to earn it. You'll be free when, when you learn how to depend on the Lord for everything. So is it possible that part of the reason why you're not free is that you don't know how to rest? And part of the reason why you don't know how to rest is because everywhere else in your life you have to work to earn something. And is it possible that the Lord leading you to freedom means that he has to lead you out of independence and into a deeper dependence? that you learning how to be free is you learning how soul rest comes from depending on him. That, that this, is, this is part of why we gather on Sundays, 
is to, is to set down all of our clamoring and to set down all the things that we thought would give us independence and give us freedom and go, I have to have a place. I have to have a community. I have to have an entire day where I literally don't do anything and I still hear the Lord smiling over me. Like, I didn't do it right last night. I'm not gonna do it right this week, but I can come together with my other brothers and sisters and go, I don't deserve any of this and the Lord is still singing over me. And that will actually give you rest and when you learn how to rest and learn that the Lord provides for you, you'll be free. So the two provisions that the Lord says in his providing is the pathway to freedom. Two provisions. He will daily give you what you need, and over time you will learn to trust his provision and that you must lean into his provision of rest for you. And when those two things collide, you will be free. And if you were to continue this journey throughout the Old Testament following the people of God, you would see that theme continue. The people of God refusing to enter into the Lord's rest for them. The people of God refusing dependence on Him and demanding their own independence over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The failed attempts at being free and the failed attempts at stepping into the provision of God for their freedom. And that theme continues all the way up into the New Testament. And then we meet this central character in the Bible named Jesus. And wouldn't you know it that Jesus in John chapter 6 actually speaks about Exodus 16. The passage that we read today. Our story of the Lord raining down manna from heaven. Jesus gives commentary on that passage. I, re I read a bunch of commentaries about passages, scholars who have studied these passages their entire life. Jesus is the best commentator on Scripture, I promise. When Jesus starts explaining a passage, it's probably pretty accurate. And let me tell you how Jesus describes and explains Exodus chapter 16. It's right after, in John chapter 6, it's right after Jesus has fed the 5,000, which is really more like 20,000, because it's 5,000 men. So he's fed all these people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, and he feeds them all, and they're full, and they're going, this dude knows some magic tricks. I want more of the magic tricks. I, I gotta be close to this guy because he just filled my belly. I wonder what else he could do for me. I wonder what else he could fill for me. I wonder what else he could give me that I think I need. And so they chase Jesus down. They're going, hey, what's next? Like, show us your next trick. And, and, and they're demanding for him to keep doing miracles for him, for them. And Jesus in that passage, they're going, give, give us more of the bread. The bread you gave us over there on the mountainside, give us more of the bread. And they go, oh, you know what? Moses gave the people bread. Moses gave the people manna in the wilderness. You must be like Moses. You must be our deliverer. You must be our future king. You're the guy. You're the guy we've been waiting on. You're going to defeat Rome. We need you to do what Moses did. Right, we see the connections now. We see the manna. We see the feeding of the 5,000. This is the same thing. Do it for us, Jesus. And Jesus has to kind of set the record straight, and he actually says, I, I'm actually the true manna. He says that. He says, I'm the true bread from heaven. Yeah, Moses gave your ancestors bread in the wilderness. I'm, I'm what that thing was pointing to. I'm what manna was actually a foreshadow of. I'm the true bread from heaven. That just like manna in the wilderness met their daily needs of their hunger, I'm telling you I'm the true bread from heaven that will fulfill your spiritual needs. You're not just hungry in your stomach, you're hungry in your soul, and you need to feast on me, you need to feast on the bread of life, the true bread of heaven, if you want satisfaction for your soul. 
And then Jesus says to the crowds, he goes, yeah, yeah, Moses led the people in the wilderness. He was leading them out of slavery and into freedom. But he says to them, you have no idea how to be free. You have no idea what freedom is. And they are getting out their pens and their notebooks, and they're going, well, tell us what we have to do. They say to him, tell us the works, plural, that we've got to do in order to achieve this freedom and this satisfaction and this rest that you're talking about. And Jesus subtly shifts the plural to a singular. They say, tell us the works we have to be doing in order to enter into this rest. And Jesus says, well, it's not plural, it's singular. There's one one thing you have to do. There's one work, one work you need in order to be free and to be satisfied. He says, you have to rest in the work of God. You have to feast on the bread of life. You have to feast on me. And that may be the hardest work for modern Western people to do. Rest in Jesus' work for you. Feast on his work for you, just like you feast on bread for your stomach. Feast on it for your soul. Set down your works, plural, and pick up his work, singular, for your rest. And then Jesus seemingly gets hyperbolic. Like, certainly, Jesus, you're exaggerating with this promise. Certainly, you can't actually be serious when you say that in John chapter 6. Certainly, you can't actually mean those words. That he attaches a promise, a guarantee with this feasting on him that will happen to people that feast on the daily bread of his work for them. He says, if you feast on me, you won't even be hungry anymore. All the stuff that you clamor for, all the things that your soul is hungry for, all the attention, all the value, all the dignity, all the glory, all the intimacy, all the love, all the things that you've attached your soul's hunger to, when you feast on me, you won't even be hungry for those things anymore. Not because you won't actually want those things anymore, but you will have eaten your fill of them when you feast on me. He's, he's the embodiment of uh, woman wisdom in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 9. Woman wisdom sets a feast for her people, and he's the manifestation of that. And you know what she does? She calls from the mountaintop in the book of Proverbs and says, come and feast on this buffet that I've set for you. When you feast here, you'll be full. Jesus is wooing the people and saying, when you come to this banquet, you'll be so full on all the things that you want in life, you'll be so full on them, it will be like you're not even hungry anymore. You won't need to run to the world to get them anymore. You'll already have them in me. And all the bread that the world is offering you, all the money, all the significance, all the sex, all the popularity, all the approval, all the power, all the things that you've attached your soul's hunger to and you've said, if I could just feast on those things and I've got to go get them, do you know what true freedom in the world is? Do you know what it means to be a truly free person? Is to wake up in the morning and not need those things. There's only one way to not need them. You've already got them. When you already have them in Jesus, when you already have them from the bread of life, you won't be hungry for them in the world anymore. You know how free you'll be? That whatever work you're doing, whatever job, whatever vocation, whatever motherhood, whatever barista, whatever you've been called into, you can actually step into that role as a free person. And you don't need it to go a certain way in order to give you a certain result. You will already have what you want and need in Jesus. And you'll be free. 
This is the provision of God. This is his daily bread. You know, Jesus makes this reference in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Give us this day our daily bread. He's talking about manna, but he's making it about himself. He's the daily bread that you need every day. If you don't feast on him every day, you'll be hungry when you go into the world. And you'll eat at all their buffets instead. Jesus, the bread of life, is saying to us, just like physical food can satisfy your hunger needs, just like manna fell from heaven to meet the hunger needs of the people in the wilderness, so too did the bread of life come down from heaven to satisfy your spiritual need every day. Feasting and resting, feasting and resting, feasting and resting, feasting and resting. When we do that, we'll be free. But just like the Israelites, the church, the New Testament people of God need to learn how to walk in that freedom. We need the weekly rhythm of learning how to rest together. We need the rest together in the provisions of God. Rest in the work of God. Hebrews chapter 4. This is the last thing I'll say. Maybe. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. The author of Hebrews is trying to make a comparison between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, the church. And he's saying, they labored every day, six days a week, and then on the seventh day, they entered into a Sabbath day of rest. He says, that was great for them, but we have a better Sabbath to enter into. We have a better rest to enter into. There awaits for the people of God a better Sabbath Here's how he says we enter into it. Same thing. It's the same thing in Exodus. It's the same thing in John chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 4 is saying the same thing. You want to know how to enter the deeper Sabbath rest for your soul? The Bible actually says this. You have to cease, meaning stop. You have to cease from your works and pick up his. Not like cease from your works because they're worldly and secular and pick up the works of God and go do better things. No, no, no. You have to cease, like lay down your works thinking that those things would give your soul rest. You have to pick up his work for you. And when we can begin to set down our works and going, I thought being a good husband would give me rest. I thought being a good dad would give me rest. I thought being a successful musician would give me rest. I thought making more money would give me rest. I thought whatever would give me rest. We set down those efforts to feast on that worldly bread and we go, I've got to pick up the work of the bread of life. And what happened to the bread of life? We're about to celebrate it with communion. He was broken for you. He was torn to pieces for you. He was ripped apart for you. And that work becomes our rest. I don't have anything to prove. I don't, I don't have anything I need. I'm not even hungry anymore because I've feasted on the bread of life. Let's pray. Jesus, we are tired and hungry. And we come uh, to you to feast, to eat our hearts content out that we might find rest and freedom for our souls that far from knowing what daily dependence means, uh, start today, weekly dependence. Start with our regularly built-in Sabbath rest, we pray, and lead us into rest and freedom right now, that it might intoxicate us and lead us into deeper freedom for our soul. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're about to enter um, a time of sacrament, a sacred practice of the church, a means of grace for the church. We're going to partake of the communion meal together. 
Let me just say two brief things about it before we dive in together. The first is this, is that this meal of bread and juice is so powerful, the Bible says. It's so mysteriously powerful that you need to push pause before you come to this table. There's two, two warnings on the, on the fence outside, if you will, that would warn you before you come partake. The first is this. If you're someone in the room who's never repented, who's never laid down their, their, their worldly bread feasting and said, that's not doing it for me. I need a different bread of life. If you've never repented in your life, don't start pretending to repent now just because everyone else is doing it. But then the second warning in Scripture is to those of us in the room who have repented before and worse, we're in a season for whatever reason that we would be willfully refusing to repent over something that the Holy Spirit is convicting us over. Maybe we need to repent to the person right next to us or someone across the room. Maybe we need to repent to someone across town or pick up the phone this afternoon. Maybe we need to repent to the Lord. Whatever repentance you're refusing, if you're explicitly, knowingly, and willfully refusing to repent, then you need to let these elements pass in front of you as well. But if you're a sin-sick pilgrim on the way who's lost in the wilderness, who's hungry, come and eat. This is the storehouse of mercy that never runs dry. And so we come and we feast, we commune together. And just like manna in the wilderness, if only there was a jump from our passage to communion, if only there was bread to talk about. Kidding, pastor joke, not very funny. But we... we we are, we are about to feast on the bread of life. We're about to feast on the true bread from heaven who came down and was torn apart for us. But, but just like the Israelites, you know, they walked around asking when it was coming every morning, what is it, what is it, what is it, manna, manna, manna. You, you might be in, you, this might be your 900th time taking communion. You still might not get it all. That's actually great. That you would still be going, what is this? What is it? I don't fully understand it. I don't know how I got here. I don't know what it is, but I'm eating it and I'm satisfied. And so would you forget trying to explain it or understand it and would you just come and feast on the body of Jesus broken for you and the blood of Jesus shed for you for the remission of all of your sins? You're invited to come and feast even if you don't understand it. And when you feast here, not only will you be free, you won't even be hungry anymore. So the band is going to sing a song over you that will invite you to take a deep soul sigh and prepare yourself to meet with the living Jesus, the living bread. And as they do that, you're welcome to sing with them. You're welcome to do whatever it is that you need to prepare your heart to meet with him. And then after the first song, the the servers will come on up and they'll pass the elements down the rows and you can partake of them whenever you would like as you get them. If after the first song happens, if you feel stuck in your head, stuck on the treadmill, um, we've, we've got a, a, a beautiful, humble, passionate prayer team that meets every Sunday, and they would love to step in and pray with and for you. If you go up these stairs and all the way down the hall, the last door on the left, they're waiting for you. They would love to step into your um, soul's hunger and intercede and pray over you and for you and with you. So please take them up on that. It is, it is not abnormal for you to need prayer. It's actually a healthy sign if you were to get up and go up there. It's great. So the band will lead us, um, and then you should be spending these next few minutes just asking the Lord to meet with you as you feast on him.